You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that Will you join me for a word of prayer? On this holiest of mornings, Lord God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. May we receive the fullness of your word and may it bear deep and lasting fruit in our lives. This we ask in the precious name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, today's gospel reading is from the much ballyhooed shorter ending of the Gospel of Mark. If your Bible that you have at home or maybe brought with you and is tucked under your shoulder this morning is anything like mine, when you get to the end of verse 16.8, you'll see a footnote, something like this. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16.9-20. through 20. Now, this is old, old scholarly news. In fact, our pulpit Bible doesn't even have those verses in it. But the reality is that it fuels a lot of conspiracy theories. This is the kind of thing that aspiring atheist YouTubers, anxious to gobble up some of those fat Google dollars, make videos about in their basement that always end kind of the same way. This is why the Bible is unreliable and Christianity isn't true. Mic drop. (laughs) Even more responsible scholars, like Paul Meyer, have used this as a turning point uh, in some of their work. Paul Meyer is a professor of ancient Near Eastern archaeology, uh, but he wrote a couple of fiction books. This one, A Skeleton in God's Closet, revolves in part around this... uh, disputed ending of Mark's gospel, um, and it drives the plot of it. It's a great thriller. If you're looking for a good book to read, this, John the Carr has nothing on this book. This is an excellent book, if you like this, that kind of thing. But, um, but the reality is that it doesn't really matter whether Mark or one of Mark's disciples wrote verses 9 through 20. It matters whether the Holy Spirit was ultimately the author of those verses. But even if Even if originally the gospel ended here at verse 16.8, it would be a remarkably bad proof that Jesus had not risen. I never found this particularly jarring, even before I was a believer and came across this little fact. Because here's the reality of the early church. The gospel of Mark was not written to convince anybody that Jesus rose from the dead. The Gospel of Mark was written for a community of believers. They already believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. See, the reason it wasn't used in evangelism is that this is how evangelism was not done in the early church. You didn't hand out Bibles. Most people couldn't read. 
And the books of the Bible were hand-copied, so they were precious. They were stored in safe places so that they could be used by the worshiping community. The way the early church did evangelism was like this. Person by person, conversation by conversation. People who already believed in the truth of Jesus' resurrection going and telling their friends, their families, their neighbors, and even their enemies about the great good news of this Jewish Messiah who had come back to life. The Gospel of Mark was not written to evangelize. The Gospel of Mark was written so that the community of faith could remember the details of that great event in resurrection in salvation history. But those last verses, that last verse, verse 8, where we're told that trembling and bewildered the women went out and fled from the tomb, well, I do think they prove something. I do. I really do. Um, I think they prove uh, how ridiculous the people of God are. Because the second half of that verse says this. It says that they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, verses 6 and 7, they've already encountered that angel. The angel's already told them that he is not here, he is risen. So even if with the shorter ending, the resurrection proclamation's in there, it's a remarkably bad text to try and prove Jesus didn't rise from the dead. (laughs) But they said nothing. Despite the angel's specific instructions to go and tell the disciples. They had just heard that there was nothing left to fear, that death had been conquered. But this is new, this is strange, and so they're afraid. And immediately, they disobey God's message to them through that angel. The people of God are persistently ridiculous. Those women, just like us, three days before at the Passover meal, had heard the story of God's mighty acts of salvation in bringing the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They had heard about the miracles. They'd heard about the plagues. They'd heard about the parting of the Red Sea and the pillar of smoke and fire. They'd heard about how God had wiped out the army of Pharaoh to protect the people impoverished by their slavery. But you know what Exodus 19 tells us? Three new moons later, that's about 60 days or less, when Moses went up the mountain to listen to God, the people got a little nervous that he was gone longer than they expected. So here's what they did. They made for themselves another God. Now this God couldn't do miracles, couldn't part the sea, couldn't, dis- couldn't defeat armies. But it was close at hand. They could put their hands on it, they could touch it, and that was pretty reassuring. I think it was probably also a bonus that this God did whatever they wanted it to, rather than expecting them to do what he wanted them to. The people of God, our fear makes us persistently ridiculous. Should we be surprised? that these women followed in the footsteps of their spiritual ancestors, our spiritual ancestors. We always want one more proof, one more evidence that God is really going to do what he says he's going to do. Good old Thomas here. 
I mean, he has in the, in the Gospels, he's willing to die with the other disciples. But a week after Jesus' death, when he's not at dinner, he's, when Jesus shows up to eat with the other ten disciples, because Judas is already dead, Thomas says, I know we've wandered around. I know we've lived together for three years. I know we've faced death and persecution together. But I know you're all telling the same story. But really, unless I can see the nails, holes in his hand and put my finger in the spear hole in his side, I am not going to believe. Ridiculous. And what's amazing about this day that I want you to pay attention to and that I want to give full credit for bringing this to my attention to the Reverend Dr. Sarah Hinlicky, and I was reading an article of hers, is that while Romans 4.25 tells us that Christ died for our sins and rose for our justification, the gospel stories all tell us about Jesus returning to the very people who had just crucified him or stood idly by while he was crucified. Cleopas and the unnamed disciple in the road to Emmaus story, they'd hid like cowards when Jesus was crucified. And Jesus returns to break bread with them, to spend time with them. And if you don't think this is radical, think for yourself, just for a minute, think to someone in your life who has betrayed you and hurt you very, very deeply. And now imagine... Think of that person. Get them in your mind. And now, think that you're going to be assigned to work with them intimately for years and years on end in a really messy project where emotions are going to get high and you're going to be right up in each other's business. If that's difficult for you to imagine, maybe it's easier with some historical pairings. What if, can you imagine King George III and George Washington being tasked with working on transatlantic unity immediately after Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown in the American Revolution? Can you imagine President Trump serving in President Biden's administration? You know, at the birth of our republic, that was the rule. The loser in the presidential election was the vice president. They were smarter about how hard it was to maintain unity in a diverse society. Can you imagine Candace Owens and Cardi B working together on the future of black culture in America, or Ben Shapiro and Abraham Kennedy being tasked with working on racial reconciliation? This is the kind of relationship into which Jesus returns with us. Because, let's face it, if you're in a situation like this, no matter how earnest you are, no matter how much you are acting in good faith, here's what you're always worried the other person's doing. <laughs> and Jesus knows that that's what we're doing. Jesus not only died for our sins and rose for our justification, He returned to a people that He knew would disregard Him, disobey Him, dishonor Him and crucify Him afresh by their every sin. He knew our fear would drive us right back to the sin from which He died to save us. And yet He came back and enters into a relationship with us and promises to be with us to the end of the age despite the fact that for us fallen human beings it's always the status quo. 
I heard a historian recently say that, you know, everyone knows that those who don't know history are doomed to repeat his mistakes, but the problem with being a historian is that when you know history, you're doomed to watch everyone else repeat its mistakes. Do you know where this word status quo comes from? It's not despite what you might have heard from your undergraduate political science professor, bourgeois complicity in the forces of late capitalism or whatever. I wish I could tell you it was that. The word status quo comes from places like this. This is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Built over what is believed to be two of the most important sites in salvation history. Golgotha, the hill where Jesus was crucified, which was outside the city limits at the time of his crucifixion, and the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea where he was buried. The reason why the term status quo is applied to this and other holy sites around um, what we call the Holy Land today, or Israel, is because Sultan Osman III of the Ottoman Empire, there was so much unrest amongst the Christians in his empire that in 1757 he had to blow the whistle and go, time out, everyone back to your corners. Because all the Christians were fighting over who was going to be in charge of these sites. And when I say everything was to stop just as it was, this is a picture of the ladder that was leaned against the wall at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in 1727 and is still there today. The term status quo got applied to this arrangement. And you know what status quo is today at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? It's that no Christian can get into that building and worship there without the help of this man. Meet Adib al-Hussein. I tried to get his middle names right, but I don't want to mispronounce them and be disrespectful. He holds the key to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This has been passed down uh, father to son for generations. And he's proud of the work he does. He does it without pay. During a recent uh, interview with the BBC, he said this. He said, we are here in Jerusalem, Muslims and Christians. We are living together. We are brothers here. It's too bad that not everyone actually feels that way. And it's ridiculous that Christians should be fighting over this church and who's going to have rights and possession of it because do you want to know how important this church is? The Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you want to take a guess when it was built? Because there's pretty good evidence that the house of Peter was a church from the earliest days, an active and living church. There's pretty good archaeological evidence for that. But no one thought to put a stone down where Jesus lay in the tomb until 326 AD, nearly 300 years later. And then it was the Roman emperor's mother. And she was importing the Roman custom of gathering at the tombs of people. See, all over the ancient world, you would gather at the tomb of an ancient teacher to discuss their life and discuss their teachings and keep their teachings alive. Do you know that one of the great evidences for the resurrection that's little remarked upon is that Christians never did that? Christians never gathered at the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. When the emperor's mom wanted to build a church there, she had to send a research party out to Jerusalem, and then they really couldn't be sure exactly which tomb it was. They're pretty sure they got the right one. Christians didn't care. It wasn't important. 
If I talk to you today about D-Day, what you think of are the beaches of Normandy. I bet not one of you can name a beach where the ships left from in England. The tomb of jo Joseph of Arimathea where Jesus lay was nothing but a staging ground for his victory over sin, death, and the devil. Christians were interested in going out with that good news, not gathering in around a tomb that was, in the end, just a passing-by place for Jesus. But today, Christians fight in these very holy places. We've imported this Roman virus and we need to get it out of our systems. The left-hand picture here is uh, actually from the Church of the Nativity. But I like this picture because you can see the broom flying by in the front. That's where one monk who made vows to become as Christ-like in his character as possible thought it was a good idea to throw a broom at another monk who made vows to be as Christ-like in his character as possible. We are ridiculous. And that... The great good news of Jesus' resurrection is that he not only rose for our justification, but he returned to dwell with people just like this. Because if we're honest with ourselves, if we check our hearts, and not just our behaviors, but those secret thoughts and desires that are known only to us and to God, we know that our internal life we're a lot more like these squabbling monks than we are like the great heroes of our faith. People who responded to the gospel, not perfectly, but more completely than us. And so the light of Christ shone through them in a way that earned even the admiration of those who disagreed with them. And if you don't know any of the names of the people up here, people like Dog Hammarskjöld and Francis Chan and Dorothy Day and Father Nectarios, we should. Because we Christians need role models, just like everyone else does. We need people to look up to, and we shouldn't be drawing them from sports or entertainment culture. Yes, it is always status quo with us fallen human beings, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that that's just an illusion. Nothing's really status quo anymore because death has begun to work backward. The curse has been broken and we are called not just to hear about the forgiveness of our sins but to enter into a living relationship with Him that will transform us, that will change us forever from the inside out. It's hard though to do that. Because while Jesus is with us even to the end of the age and he speaks to us, there's a lot of other voices speaking to us too. Um, Doctors Nicholas and Roxanne Lull wrote this book you see in front of you. It looks like a self-help book by the title. It's actually not. It's about how to experience God in your day-to-day -day life and the things that usually get in the way of it. When I heard them interviewed, I mean, I'm in the middle of this book right now, so I can't give you a full book review. But... Um, when I heard them interviewed, here's what uh, Dr. Roxanne, she's the psychologist, had to say. She said, well, you know, a good, example, a good analogy to the spiritual life is uh, when our kids play soccer. She said, we're soccer parents. And I wish I could tell you that we're the model soccer parents. 
who encourage all the kids and all the other adults look up to us, but we're not. <laughs> Here's what it sounds like when we're watching our kids play soccer. Run! What are you doing? No, no, get the ball. Go, 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 go. Watch that defender. Shoot, shoot. <laughs> After, she said, after a recent game when, where our son did particularly well, I ran up and gave him a hug and I said, hey, did you hear us yelling for you? And he said, no. <laughs> Mom, there, there was too much, too much other noise going on. I couldn't hear your voice. And that's how the voice of Christ is often in our lives. And like I said, I can't give you a full review on the book yet, but it's really readable and really practical. And I got to say, I like their approach because... The reality is, is they both know from the work they do that most of us can't afford to change our lives radically. But what we can do, if we want to have more of that abundant life that Christ came to give us, if we want to, if we want to experience more of that, we can do a little bit less and a little bit more. A little less of the things that are taking life away from us and a little more of what would give us true and deep spiritual life. We all have a couple things we could do a little bit less of, don't we? Some toxic habits that we could afford to get rid of. Maybe a little less attention to political posturing so we have a little more time for prayer. Maybe a little less YouTube so we can have a little more time to focus on the universal brotherhood of humanity. A little less Netflix, maybe so that we can spend a little more time with page flicks through the New Testament. A little less of all the news that's fit to print and a little more of the good news that alone is eternal. The news proclaimed by that angel in this morning's reading. We can have this. We could each do a little less and a little bit more. Because these are frightening times we live in. What seemed like eternal truths just a few years ago are in dispute. Everything's topsy-turvy. Down seems to be up and up seems to be down and everybody's jockeying for position in whatever brave new world is going to emerge after this present darkness. But I have a question for you. However large or small, your sphere of influence is. How do you hope to make a difference if you're doing the same thing as everyone else around you? Even the people who you think have the analysis right because their behaviors are helping to create this boiling cauldron we're all sitting in. How do you hope to make a difference if what you're doing is the same as everyone else? It was a crowd that crucified Jesus. As my father-in-law's sociology professor taught him more than 50 years ago at Penn State, while a person can be smart, people is dumb. We can have the power to resist the tides of our age only when we give our ear and our lives to the one who is the king over all ages.
who has an eternal perspective on the issues that face us. We can be, as Romans 12, 2 says, not conformed to this age, but transformed by the renewing of our minds through a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And all the talk about discipleship, all the focus of the energies of this church and me as a pastor are on helping people engage in that once they've come to faith. Because Jesus' death and resurrection shows that he's for us. But his return to us is the great gift of this resurrection morning. And the truth secured by the proclamation we give with great joy that Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Amen. And alleluia. My vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my life.